Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Here's a little pro tip for you. You can skip your next two house payments. That's right. Your single biggest bill. You can pocket all that cash for the next two months. I'm talking to you. No house payments in February. No house payments in March. You keep all of that and you won't make another payment until May. And come May, you're going to have a cheaper monthly payment. SaveWithConrad.com has routinely helped our podcast listeners get rid of all their credit card debt, just like that. Really think about it. Your average interest rate on a credit card is more than 20%, and you can't write off any of that interest. Whereas with a mortgage, you're going to get a much better rate, and the interest is totally tax deductible. Once you've racked up this debt, how you pay it back is up to you. Doesn't it make the most sense to get the cheapest rate and the greatest tax deduction? Of course. Find out how much money you can save right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. We're licensed in more than 40 states. You don't need perfect credit. In fact, credit scores in the 500s can be approved. And we're talking even if you've had late payments, even if you've had a foreclosure, even if you've had a bankruptcy, we could still help you save thousands. And maybe best of all, you get to pay your house off faster and do it with cheaper monthly payments. I'm talking to you if you're in a 30-year loan. It's not a matter of if we can save you money. It's a matter of how much. We routinely help our podcast listeners take their 30-year loan and pay it off in just half the time. And the way we do that is by getting rid of all their other debt so their monthly payments go down. How much can you save? Five, six, seven, even 800 bucks a month? Get a quick quote right now for free. It's no cost, no obligation. And if we can't save you some money, we won't waste your time. At SaveWithConrad.com. That's SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender, SaveWithConrad.com. Welcome to Something to Wrestle With. Something to Wrestle With. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She booted. There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. I ain't scared of shit. I ain't scared of shit. Fuck him. You, Bruce. I love you. It's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Feeling good, dog. I'm feeling good. 1995 Royal Rumble, if you will, baby. If you got one bad thing to say about this, we're going to commence to fighting. Well, I know something we're not going to fight about. I hate Steven Singer. You heard me. I hate, I hate Steven Singer. Everybody hates Steven. Specifically, Every jeweler in America hates this guy because he's got the best Valentine's day gift ever. Of course, we're talking about something that's even hard to imagine, but picture this, 
It's a real American beauty rose, a long stem rose that's been deeply dipped in pure 24 karat gold. And it's going to last forever, starting at just 59 bucks. It even comes with a personalized love note, all in Steven's signature gift box shipped for free, starting at just $59. This will last forever. Go to I hate Steven singer.com. That's I hate Steven singer.com. Uh, but what we can agree on is the Royal rumble, 1995. Holy cow. Did we get a lot of feedback about this? We threw it up on Twitter and said, Hey, if you've got a question about, uh, Royal rumble, 95, ask it here. And man, we got blown up. People are fired up about this episode. They are good reason to be because it was one of the best rumbles of all time. Well, I don't know about that. Hey, you know what? I, again, I think if anything holds up over time and watching it back, the story holds up. It's all about story and the story held up. Well, listen, I can't argue any of that. Uh, I do want to apologize. Last week we had every intention of uh, letting you guys ask some questions here. And that was, uh, our intention for Royal rumble, 1990. We got a little bit of a curveball last week, right in the middle of recording. Uh, we learned of the passing of Rocky Johnson and to say that that changed the tone and tenor of our show would be a massive, massive understatement. Uh, but we've got lots of fun questions about 1990. So I thought before we got going into 1995, we'd circle back a little bit and let people pick your brain for 1990. What say you? I say, go for it, man. I'm ready. By the way, if you haven't already check it out in the archives, Royal rumble, 1990, such a fun show. I mean, so much meat on the bone here. Uh, mayhem would write in. Can you comment on Rick Martell's spray can gimmick? Whose idea was it? What exactly was he spraying? Arrogance. The lovely scent of arrogance. Okay. But what it was, was it was a takeoff on, you know, in the, uh, fifties, gorgeous George, the original gorgeous George, George Wagner had a valet that came to the ring. And before George would get into the ring, the valet would go around the ring with this automizer and he would spray perfume so that the ring smelled appropriate before George would enter. And it was take off on that. And instead of doing the, the automizer like George did, thought of it would be better and just more visual uh, to do. It's, it's like the old, you always saw those old commercials of the pesticides. And they would use that. That's what they used. You would fill, fill that up with pesticide and spray for roaches and shit around your house back in the olden days. And it was uh, just a little different presentation, a different approach. Arrogance. James Stewart had a variation of a question that we got a lot. Uh, was Vince really over tanned from the Orlando beaches? And that's why Tony did play play by play. Easy for me to say. Shivani has said on the podcast before that, uh, he was not supposed to do commentary on this show. Uh, but when Vince arrived to the building, he said, Hey, do you have your tuxedo? And he said, yes, sir. And he said, okay, cool. You're on the call tonight. And he thinks that maybe that was because, you know, the, uh, the beach had been too kind to Vince. What say you? Well, I say that we might as well get some use out of Tony. Okay. Uh, Steve Frazier writes, what's the giant book that Fink had in his lap? What? 
All right. Okay, y'all are way too fucking observant. I, I, I wasn't looking at the Fink. He had a giant book in his lap. I have no idea. Um, did this is from Eric? Did Butch Reed invent the Royal Rumble? No, that's one thing that Butch did not invent. He invented the Rumble Royale. Completely different concept. A lot of people get confused about that. Uh, so I, I, I'm sorry, but not the Royal Rumble. It was the Rumble Royale. Lots of variations of this question too, from Josh Weekly. He writes, "Why in some years did the wrestlers not have their theme music, and in some years they did?" It was experimental, and it was it was something later on when we did the music for everybody. I, I think that that added to it because instantly, even if you didn't see them, you reacted. And early on, you had to wait until, well, until they cleared, until the entire arena saw them. And we didn't have the big trons and stages at that time. So I think that adding the music as time went on really helped it. Lots of variations of this. You know, we understand hashtag Hogan must pose, but given where we were headed, would it have made sense in hindsight for the ultimate warrior to have won the match here? Fuck no. Why not? <laughs> well, okay. Because again, warrior was going to go over WrestleMania six in Toronto. And this was kind of a swan song for Hulk at the time. Um, I think that you shoving him down their throat too much at that time with where we were in the build of the warrior, I don't think it would have made sense. Tony Barker writes in, why was the Tito Santana slash Rick Martell feud never settled on a major pay-per-view? Great question, by the way. Well, it's not everything was settled on pay-per-view that was settled in live events in arenas across the country, main event, anywhere in the world. Eh. Post bucket writes in, when was the decision made to have DiBiase enter as number one? And was it a callback to 89 when he bought the number 30 spot? Well, it was because it was what's the worst spot that you could have. And that was number one. So going from playing off of last year, yes, that's exactly what it was. And Teddy was someone that we felt could also last a while. And you think, oh my God, he's, he's going to last this thing. And then boom, dump him on his ass. Lots of questions about Rick Rude coming out prematurely. He comes out when there's like 10 seconds left. Intentional mistake. Anybody notice or care? I don't think anybody noticed or cared. It was probably a, a, a timing issue and somebody just sending him. Maybe me. I don't know. Let me just say Mark from Tampa really gets it. Andre never had entrance music. Hypothetically, if he did, what should it have sounded like? I forget my Andre shit. Ooh, I, <laughs> I, Andre, I'll get boss. Poo-poo. That was terrible. I, lots I of was terrible. I, you know, I forget my old shit sometimes. Yeah, we've seen SmackDown. Uh, Drew Smith writes, can you explain the purpose of Hogan and Warrior going crisscross on the ropes? What does this actually do? It's been borrow- bothering me for 30 years. Literally every fifth question is about the fucking crisscross. 
God damn, it's a it's a it's a move. You're trying to gain the advantage on your opponent. You're trying to catch him for a tackle. You're trying to catch them just be a step off. It's like a challenge. Okay, you hit the ropes and I'll hit the ropes and let's see. You know, we're waiting for somebody to make that first move. Drop down, tackle, get it again. Boom. Grab a headlock. Let's go. Well, simple shit, man. Why does that bother you? Who asked that question? Lots of people. It's like, okay. Lots of people. Why does that bother you? Enjoy it. It's action. It's action. Running the ropes is action. It is action. Uh, Jonathan Addo wants to know, do you recall your job duties for this show in particular? And what did those duties entail? Of course he means besides being on camera. Um, God for that show. I probably was just worried about my on camera stuff. At that point, yeah, I was, uh, so who's running gorilla and sending guys at this point, probably JJ Dillon. What would, what would Bruce, not Bruce, but Vince have been doing during the show? Where would he be situated? Vince probably would have been all over the place. Just kind of making sure that everything was lined up and everywhere. You know, it it was a lot different then. First of all, you didn't have all of the. RF communication where you can have, everybody can have a headset and wander all over the building and be in contact. You know, we, we, you didn't have that. It was, if you needed to communicate with someone, you had to go find them and talk to them face to face. We had radios, but shit, give those to old wrestler agents and they get lost within the first two weeks. And that's just sunk cost. So it's, you've got to run around and actually do the work versus having 10 million assistants and, different people doing the running for you. Uh, Mark from Tampa is really on his shit. He's breaking down the film here. Like it's the fucking JFK video and he spots, uh, after Hogan eliminates Haku at two hours, 41 minutes and 34 seconds, what he believes to be a WWE official sitting ringside, giving the cue for Tito to be eliminated. How are eliminations done? Was there a guy sitting ringside? We've heard before that. You know, they would, you know, look to the ring announcer and if he was waving his tie or had a pencil in his mouth, Mark, you would be incorrect. So what was the cue here? There was no cue there. Guys knew the match. They knew when they went out, there's nobody down there giving them cues. No, Uh, we got lots of questions about this and I know what you're going to say, but I feel like if I don't ask, I'm going to get hit with more questions about it. Can we please talk about the yellow intercontinental belt appeared right around this time. It was only used until WrestleMania six. Why the color changes for the belts for warrior only. And whatever happened to the yellow I see after WrestleMania six. Well, the color changes were for warrior because he was a colorful character and we just wanted to change it up a little bit. I think we had purple and yellow and just some different colors. I don't think that any of them other than the yellow actually got out. We had the purple, uh, WWF championship for warrior for a time. But the idea was to do some, some different colors for him because he was a colorful character. And what became of it is uh, warrior held it in his private collection then eventually sold it. I think it's with a private collector in Boston, but warrior before he passed away would try to sell other belts as the actual yellow intercontinental and just rip off fans for tens of thousands of dollars. But, uh, the real one, I believe to be somewhere in the Boston area. Uh, lots of interesting questions, uh, about some guys that we've already talked about ad nauseum, 
uh, you can catch most of these answers in the archives. Without further ado, let's get to the topic at hand today. Royal Rumble 1995, and we're covering it, man, just a couple of days after the 25-year anniversary it went down at the USF Sundome in Tampa, Florida on January 22nd. Uh, I can't believe this is real, but uh, we, we drew 10,000 fans less than Royal rumble 94, which was 14,500, but more than what you would draw in 1996 with 9,600, 10,000 fans attending a Royal rumble. Boy, we're a long way from that now. Are we not? Yeah. By shit. Three, four times easily. It's unbelievable how much the business has grown since. But here it feels like, man, we are at the bottom of the barrel in 1995. I, this is the first time you've seen this in a long time, but you know, let's take a look at your average attendance. So your average attendance for a show in January, 94 is 2,880 fans. We're up to 2,900 fans in January of 95. Your average gate in January, 94 is only 39,320 bucks. We're up five grand to $44,320 in January, 95. We're not selling out any of our shows and ratings are actually down 17% going from an average 2.3 in January, 94 to an average of 1.9 in January of 95. When I just run those numbers past you, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, it was a downtime. I mean, there was just a rebuilding time and it was a, period in the business where, you know, we were on a downtrend and trying to dig out of that hole that the trial had kind of put us in. So it was, it was a struggle. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to come up with any other word for it than that. I mean, the show itself here is going to do a 1.0 buy rate, which is higher than the 94 rumble, which did a 0.9, but lower than 1.1 that you would get for 1996. If you had to just compare and contrast, not the entire years, we'll call it just first quarters, first quarter of 94 compared to first quarter of 95 compared to first quarter of 96. Where do you think they would rank at least in your memory? Well, I'm sorry. What, you know, year over year where the business is, it feels like 94, 95, 96, the first quarter is, is not your best business. And it feels like business is down here. So if we're just trying to compare, you know, not the, not the creative, but the economics, the, the health of the business in early 94 compared to early 95 compared to early 96, are we, are we trending up? Are we treading water? Are we trending down? I think we were treading water and it was a situation where we were constantly looking for that next hit. We were looking for what, what is, you know, what is that next marker that's going to take it over the top or, you know, what's that next WrestleMania moment, uh, a la WrestleMania one, a la WrestleMania three. And since probably I would have to say, you know, WrestleMania six with Hogan and warrior was the last like mega show, I guess you could say that 
had a lot of buzz to it. And I think we were just kind of struggling trying to, trying to get that next hit. What's the next big thing going to be and working towards it. And it was, you know, you're, you're digging out of a hole. So you're not, you're not starting, you're not starting on top. You're starting at the, at the dead bottom. And it was a, just a constant struggle, but I think that we were treading water at this time. The show we're covering here from 1995 is the 8th Royal Rumble, but they switch things up here a little bit. In the prior Royal Rumbles, every 120 seconds or every two minutes, a new participant would enter the match. So it's a 60-minute match. But for the 1995 Royal Rumble, we change it to one every 60 seconds. So every minute, here comes another. Why was the change made? Whose idea was it? Why did you think you needed to sort of overhaul something you'd been doing? Was it a minute or 90 seconds? Because I thought we did 90 seconds here. Okay. Maybe you did. Either way, it yeah. was two minutes. Now it's it, changed. So the it, it just speed up the rumble a little bit. There, there were times that, the, that it would kind of bog down. And we just thought, give it a little bit faster pace and uh, try something different. And this was... One of those where if you're in control of the thing, you get rid of everybody, less time to rest, and, and just a different selling point that it would be a faster paced and a little bit more difficult trying to sell something different. Coliseum Video would release the Royal Rumble from 1995 on home video on March 8th, 1995, and it would be released in the UK on May 8th, 1995. I mention this because in this era, Video cassette sales were a big, uh, revenue stream for the company. Uh, what sort of trend are you seeing in VHS here? You know, you've said the business is trending down. Would you also see that cassette sales would be trending down as well? Or is that only when you're looking to sell tickets and pay-per-view? No, I think that the, the overall cassettes were on their way out, but we had also, you know, started looking at being able to distribute it ourselves versus using a third-party distributor, a la Coliseum video. And that was when you're, you start looking at all of those things and bringing it in house and realizing, good God, you're giving away X amount of your business. And by this time we had taken over the production of Coliseum video in the early days, Coliseum video produced all those ins and outs and they did all of that themselves. And, uh, WWE had very little to do with it other than supplying the footage. So it was a reexamination of the business as a whole because there was just less money coming in, same amount of tape, same amount of sales, but less profit coming in. So it was a reevaluation of it. And I think, you know, shit, BHS even by 95 was starting to, to be on the way out and you're hearing about this new shit coming up, you know, uh, laser discs and DVDs and all that good crap. Well, it was the good old days. And if you miss the good old days, then you probably uh, have a need for paintyourlife.com. And when I heard that at paintyourlife.com, you could have an original painting by world-class artists done by hand, all from a photo. I thought, what a great idea, but that's probably so expensive. But in reality, it's truly affordable and the quality is just unreal. Amazing. And a painting from paint your life makes the perfect gift. It's meaningful. It's personal. It can be cherished forever. 
And if you're looking for a truly meaningful gift, you've got to go to paintyourlife.com. What you can do is have an original painting of yourself, or your children, or your family, or a special place, a cherished pet, all at a price you can afford from paintyourlife.com. It's a true painting, a real painting done by hand by a world-class artist created from a favorite photo. In fact, the photo we used, we just found on our phone. It makes the perfect gift for a birthday an anniversary or Valentine's day. And here's how this works. You choose the artist that you most admire to work with, and then you work with them throughout the process until every detail is perfect. So they're going to send you status updates. Hey, how am I looking so far? I'm on the right track. There's no risk here. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded. It's great for decor. It's a work of art. It's paintyourlife.com where you get your favorite memories transformed into a work of art that you can cherish forever. And again, you want to talk about a special gift for somebody? Go look at uh, Ric Flair's Instagram. It's what Megan and I got him and Wendy for Christmas. They absolutely love it. And I got 30% off and here's how I did it. Right now is a limited time offer. You can get 30% off your painting. That's right. 30% off and free shipping. And to get the special offer, all you've got to do is text the word wrestle to 64,000. That's wrestle to 64,000. Just text W R E S T L E to 64,000. And Bruce, you've seen my painting. I think you've got one in the works. This is something else. Is it not? Hey, babe. They listen to this show, you know. Well, I didn't say who yes, was getting it. I'm just saying it's cool. It is no, it's it's beyond cool. It's absolutely beautiful, and it's one of those. After you do one, you're going to want to do two, and you want to get a, you're going to want to get one for your mother-in-law and everybody else along the way. But the quality is, it's like you said, it's like you're sitting for a painting, but it's from your favorite picture, and it's. Yeah, I, I, words can't even describe how cool it is and how beautiful that the artwork is. Don't take our word for it. Go check it out. Uh, go look at Ric Flair's Instagram, seriously. And uh, you'll see that around Christmas time. And also, too, it's worth mentioning uh, that you can take a look at lots of other art over at paintyourlife.com. But to get your order 30% off, 30% off, 30% off, just text WRESTLE to 64,000. Uh, let's get to Meltzer, your boy. He reported at the beginning of January, Jim Ross was rehired to work in the booking department and to produce television. He won't be doing any announcing. However, apparently Pat Patterson is going to cut down on his workload and Ross is being brought in to pick up the slack. Pretty much everyone in wrestling was amazed because of the general philosophical differences in regards to what the wrestling product should be between Ross and Patterson. But if you understand wrestling and those individuals, it makes perfect sense. What does that mean? It means that Dave Meltzer was ill-informed as usual. Okay. Jim well, Ross was brought in to work with the operations end of the business and to work with Ed Cohen in the live events because at the time we were doing writing all of the television as well as booking all of the live events and coordinating with Ed Cohen's uh, office who booked all the buildings and what have you and also having to deal with with the agents on a daily and nightly basis, in addition to doing all of the creative for TV and pay-per-views. Uh, JR was brought in to take that part, that load off. So what that meant was, is Jim was taking the stories that we were doing on television and booking the live events and working with 
the live events department to make sure that all of that was carried through and that everything that we had from a creative end was then carried over to the live events. And Jim being a very detailed uh, individual and very good administratively, uh, to me, was the right guy for that job. Melissa would also report the new structure at the top is Vince McMahon remaining as Booker. However, Pat Patterson has been moved laterally and he and Bruce Pritchard are in charge of writing the television and Jim Ross will be McMahon's assistant. There have been tons of rumors regarding while Ross is being brought in with most of the belief that they want a more serious and less slapstick product. And a lot of people are saying more Japan like booking with winners and losers and more parody at the top among 10 guys, rather than building around four Superman faces as they did last year. So you were there, your response. My response is what I just told you. And and that was that Jim was simply taking what we were doing on television and working with the live events in the individual markets and working from that end and took that off of our plate so that in addition to doing all of the television, everything we did, we didn't have to deal with the agents on a day-to-day basis. Jim was not free to book whatever he wanted. Jim was taking the storylines and the matches that we had booked on TV and the stories that we had booked on TV, knowing where we were going to pay-per-views and reflect that in the live events. And, you know, Meltzer would always use the, the term booker. You know, there was no booker and Vince always hated that term. It's, there was any head booker of anything it would it was has been and always will be Vince but he has a lot of help around him and the end result is everything goes through him and is signed off by him at this time it was Jim coming in to help us and it was a great opportunity for Jim to get his foot back in the door and it was something that Jim was good at as you know from that standpoint of detail oriented and making sure that all the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed with all of the other departments in the company. Uh, television was a more and more daunting job and trying to do that and do the live event booking every day. It just, it was too much. Around the same time on uh, company TV, you guys were pushing uh, Vinnie Paz and Roberto Duran on pay-per-view. This is a, a boxing pay-per-view, of course. But it's all over your TV. There's even lengthy uh, Vinny interviews. Talk about how the involvement came to be. You know, what, what, how was Vince McMahon involved in, in promoting boxing? It feels like it's out of left field, but you know, you know differently. Well, it was it, again. Vince has always toyed with being in the boxing business and looking at different ways to expand. You know, we're a promotion company, and this was another just another fight, something else to promote, no matter what it was. And it was one of those forays, kind of like Donnie Lalonde and uh, Sugar Ray years before that. And this was another opportunity. Vinny Paz was a good friend of ours, and this was an opportunity to to do something else. And they came to us for our expertise in the pay-per-view arena. Let's keep it moving. Meltzer would report that the company sent out a memo to all employees saying any contact with anyone at WCW would result in immediate dismissal. Do you recall such an initiative? And if so, what would have sparked such? 
I don't. I don't remember anything in particular. It was more of a, you know, hey, look, if you want to go leave, leave. But don't be a basically a double agent and be talking about our business. And that still holds true today. Look, if you want to go work for WCW, go to work for WCW. But don't work here and take a paycheck from this company to feed information to another company. And that was the edict. And I think that, again, when all of that gets out, that people, you know, he said, she said, she said, he said. And, and by the time that it gets to the, quote, people that print this kind of shit, it's, oh, if you talk to anybody, if you say hello to anybody at WCW, you're fired. It was, you know what? We're here. This is our competitor. It's Coke and Pepsi. They don't share secrets back and forth. That was the message. Who do you think was back channeling info? Terry Taylor wasn't here then, was he? Who would have been riding both sides? I have no idea. I, you know, I think that more than anything, there are always going to be people that like to gossip and, and stir shit up and, and just want to, they want somebody to listen to their gripes. And if you can find a sympathetic ear, no matter where that ear may be, uh, guys look for it. And it's just, you know, telephone, telegraph, tele wrestler. And that was the nature of the beast. Always has been, always will be. And I'll go back to the wrestling wars of the 50s and the 60s when territories would break up. Nine times out of ten when I would listen to the stories of the old timers talking about the different promotional wars in a town or somebody breaking away from a booking office. Nine times out of ten, there was always a referee involved because the referee was the go-between. And in different places, you had heel and babyface locker rooms, and the referee was go-between between those two guys. But the referee usually worked in the office, would right. carry finishes, would be the one that was in touch with everybody. And it, it just always shocked me when I would hear the stories. Otto Coos was a, a referee in Texas when the Dallas booking office and Houston booking office, when they split. And Otto played both sides, and Otto ended up getting burned because once the split happened, neither side wanted him because he had been working both sides. It just, you know, I, I think as a conglomeration of guys just liking to talk and shit getting out there. Where did Vince fall on that? Did he feel strongly one way or the other? He didn't like it. I don't, nobody liked it. I didn't like it. He didn't like it. I don't think anybody liked it. You, you want to feel secure and you want to feel confident when you're in a working environment that what you say and what you do within that environment is going to remain confidential. If you have to worry about everything that you say and do, no matter what business you're in, then that's not a good environment. Right. So, yeah, it's it's disturbing when you discuss confidential things or, or you want to make plans for the future that you want it to be released at a certain time under your, you know, <laughs> under your timeline, not someone else's and people getting it out there just to get it out, just to gossip, just to, to get shit out, to, to have spoilers and shit like that. Um, I don't get it. I, I, I just don't get it. 
Let's keep it moving. Meltzer would write the Rougeau situation was all over the French language newspapers in Montreal this week. And it's turned into a family feud. First Jacques went public with how mad he was because Titan sent a cease and desist letter to WCW claiming WCW was tampering with their employee and their territory, Montreal. Titan is claiming Jacques is still under contract to them until his wrestler contract expires in June. And McMahon sent a letter to Eric Bischoff threatening to sue over it. The papers were again, very favorable towards Jacques in their coverage since they traditionally will favor the French Canadians against quote unquote outsiders. Nevertheless, among the public in Montreal, Montreal, Jacques received an incredible amount of heat. One local source said they'd seen nothing like that locally in a long time, particularly within the media. When the story broke where it talked about Jacques wanting to wrestle again, if WCW runs Montreal. So it feels like maybe some of this, Hey, don't talk to the other side. Could have been instigated by perhaps Jacques trying to have conversations with WCW or with WWF employees on WCW's behalf. I think it was Jacques thinking that he wasn't going to renew his contract and he wanted to be prepared when that day came and already started negotiating with WCW saying, Hey, I can get you into Montreal. I, you need me to run Montreal and you need me to promote Montreal because I'm the big star here. And in doing so, Jacques was still under contract. So just by him talking to them at that time, it was breaching his contract and he wasn't allowed to do that. And it was a legal matter more than anything. I do have to laugh when it's like, uh, Vince sent a letter to, to Eric Bischoff threatening to sue. Vince never addressed anything to Eric and Eric will tell you that. Um, Vince didn't look at Eric as, as the guy he looked at Ted Turner and if he was going to send anything. He would send it to Ted. He would send it to Turner people. He wouldn't have addressed Eric in a million years. Why is there such a stark contrast between the Ruggio brothers with the way wrestling sort of regards them? You know, we've talked about this recently where Jacques Rougeau, for whatever reason, has heat everywhere he goes. Uh, meanwhile, Raymond, while all of this is going on, his brother is a commentator for the company and it feels like Raymond and the WWF are able to sort of have a, a bit of separation of church and state for lack of a better term. Yeah, and Raymond is one of those guys that you would have to search long, far, and wide to find anyone that doesn't like Raymond. Just class individual all the way. Really great guy. Gets along with everybody. You take his word. You take it to the bank. Jacques was more controversial. Um, Jacques was very outspoken, and and Jacques could rub people the wrong way. Um, and what I mean by that is it was personality is all it was. And I don't know that Jacques really meant any harm by it, but they were just different personalities. And my brother and I, hell, you, you know, I, people hate me and love my brother, um, vice versa too, but <laughs> it's just different. It's just different personalities. And you couldn't find two more polar opposites than, than Jacques and Raymond. Hang on. But, I'm calling bullshit on that. Who the fuck likes you and hates Tom? There's, there's somebody. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I was so slow on that. My apologies. We'll keep it going. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, but if you want to see Dr. Tom, man, 
You know what? We talked about Tracy Smothers, his benefit coming up. You can see Dr. Tom in Sevierville and uh, going out is for a good cause. And all the money is going to go to Tracy Smothers Fund, who's battling cancer right now. And Tracy's one of the good guys in the business, a friend of the show. And check him out and, and help Tracy out here. It's a good cause. Absolutely. We're going to link that, uh, everywhere we can. That's uh, brown paper ticks, brown paper tickets, uh, com is where you can search for, or just look for KFW presents the Tracy Smothers benefit show, man, Tracy's in a bad way. And I didn't know how bad, you know, his lymphoma was or where he was in his fight. I saw a picture of him the other day. I'm not actually going to be able to attend this ticket. Uh, I'll be out of town, but. I'm buying a lot of tickets just because I know the money goes to Tracy. If you're a big fan of wrestling, you should support this. Look for KFW presents Tracy Smothers benefit show. Uh, Tracy is, uh, battling stage three lymphoma. hundred percent of the proceeds go to him. If you're able to make it to Sevierville, Tennessee, it's very, very affordable. Tickets start if you're a kid at just seven dollars. They go up to thirty-five dollars. Buy the expensive tickets, guys. Let's let all of this money go to somebody in our family who who needs our help. It's KFW presents the Tracy Smothers Benefit Show. Brownpapertickets.com is where you can find it. And that date's Friday, February seventh. So you know, get on out and show Tracy some love because Tracy is one of those people back in the day that probably liked me more than Doctor Tom. I don't know about that. Uh, Meltzer would report Vince McMahon attempted to get several of his wrestlers into a Baywatch show with a wrestling theme, but was turned down. All right. Let's just pretend for a minute that Vince really did have this idea. He calls you into his office. He's going to break the news. He's got this big idea. And he says, Oh, damn pal. There's this show on TV. It's called baby watch. And what we need to do is we've got to figure out a way to work with these babies and they're on watch. I don't know the premise of it, but I'm pretty sure that, uh, we could find a way, you know, I don't know somebody with some maternal instincts to work with the babies. Baby watch. Is that, you? yeah. So I said, Actually, they came to us. Well, again, before we get the real answer, is that is that how Vince is in real life? Like he almost ha- he's like one one piece of information <laughs> away. He's real close. Like you know, my dad when social media first blew up, he'd say, "Hey, son, do you have one of those book faces? Are you on the book face?" And so you know, he wasn't saying that to be funny. He's legitimately trying to inquire. But he's just, as they said in the movie life, can't get right. Does Vince have that a little bit with, with modern pop culture stuff? In my version, he does. Sure. But in real life, <laughs> do you think he has some of that too? Um, sometimes, but once you, you know, I mean, once you explain it to him, he's, he's good with it. But, you know, sometimes it, it'll be, especially with, you know, new modern technology. You think I'm technology challenge, huh? But once he gets it, fuck, he's in love with it, and 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 really will dig in and and learn all about this uh, social medium. What does she do? She like tells you the future. 
No, he, he's he, again. Yeah, in, in my version, it is. I always like to mess with him on that. Let's talk about Baywatch, and the reason this is relevant here is because Pam Anderson is going to be a big piece of Raw Rumble nineteen ninety five. She's the real star of Baywatch. Her and and of course Mister Hasselhoff. Um, but later in ninety five, WCW appears on Baywatch. Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, Randy Savage, Vader. But meanwhile, the top star is here with you guys. What happened? Did you guys have an offer to do it? And then for whatever reason passed? Well, WCW did it for free and we wanted to be paid. And they had originally come to us with some wrestling premise and, um, it was attractive, but it was, it wasn't something that, you know, come on, you know, did you see what they did? No, I, I don't remember. It, it was, it was a little rough, but, um, not to say that it wouldn't have been great exposure. And a lot of that did come through, uh, Ray Manzella and, and Pam, Ander, who was Pam Anderson's. And I got it right that time. Ray Manzella, not Manzarek. Uh, <laughs> I looked it up specifically, uh, and, and Pam, because he was, he was involved in that. It's just fascinating to me. It's such a big show and you guys were passing on the opportunity to be associated with it. I know you don't remember off the top of your head, but hypothetically, what do you think the ask was? I mean, you guys wanted to be paid, but I mean, how far apart were you? They didn't want to pay. Don't you want to be on Baywatch? Yeah, sure we do. But your people were paid. Our people should be paid too. They thought being a, you know, in a cameo and doing stuff is would be enough and for the exposure. And I get that. I, I really do. They were the, the most popular, uh, show in the world at the time, but at the same time, you've got to position yourself in a certain way. And we didn't feel that that's the way we wanted to be positioned. Well, this Valentine's day, if you're looking to position something a certain way, let me tell you about, I hate Steven singer. You heard me. I hate Steven Singer. There's this guy in Philly you may have been hearing about. If you've been to Philadelphia, you've probably seen the billboards or heard him on the radio. I hate Steven Singer. What does that even mean? Well, Steven Singer is the most hated jeweler in America, and it's because other jewelers just can't stand him because he has the best Valentine's Day gift ever. And we're excited to tell you all about it because Steven Singer and Something to Wrestle are bringing you the best Valentine's Day gift present ever. We're excited to tell you all about it. Steven Singer's real long stem American beauty rose lavishly and deeply dipped in pure 24 karat gold. It's going to last forever and it starts at just 59 bucks. His beautiful Valentine's day red rose won't wilt. It won't die. It doesn't even need water. This is the number one gift that women want this Valentine's day. They want something unique. They want something special. They want something that will last forever. And these come with their own personalized love note right from you. All in Steven's signature gift box shipped for free and starting at just 59 bucks. Go right now to IHateStevenSinger.com to see what we're talking about. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Steven Singer Jewelers. This is a gift you'll cherish forever. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. And by the way, this is something that I've gotten for my wife. I've gotten it for my mother. I got it for my grandmother. Bischoff got some for his wife and kids. The rumor is Arn Anderson's wife is getting one this Valentine's day. 
this is not only an awesome gift, but it looks like you could add a zero behind the price tag. This just not look like a $59 gift. We're showing it off in the office earlier today. And Jim Irwin, who works in our office said, wait a minute, this was $59. And we're like, yeah, he was blown away. He's getting one. You will too. Check it out. See what all the fuss is about. I hate Steven singer.com. How cool is this? No promo code needed. It's going to start at 59 bucks with free shipping right now. Uh, let's talk about Jean-Paul Levesque. He's going to give notice to WCW on January 10th that he'd be leaving for the WWF. Allegedly, he turned down a contract that was worth between $1,500 and $1,800 per week. And apparently, Levesque's decision was based on a track record of the WWF versus WCW when it came to creating new stars. And he felt that even though WCW had plans to make him and Steve Regal the tag champs with Sherry as their manager and feud with Harlem Heat in 95, that he'd take his chances without guaranteed money since Titan is obviously going to push new blood this year as hard as it can at company meetings. This is directly from the observer. Eric Bischoff was fuming over Levesque's lack of loyalty because he took him from nothing. And this is the respect he gets after the example set with Ricky steamboat. I can't believe anyone can question a WCW wrestler about making a decision and even considering loyalty to the company. Of course, we're talking about steamboat being let go when he was injured. We know that Jean-Paul Levesque is going to bet right here. He goes on to be Hunter Hearst Helmsley and then Triple H. And now one of the McMahons, essentially. I mean, the heir to the throne. What do you remember about recruiting Jean-Paul Levesque? Well, it had actually started a year before that. Walter Kowalski, Killer Kowalski, had told us about this guy that he had trained, uh, terrorizing uh, he was his champion for Walter's independent promotion. And Pat and I had gone out to one of Walter's shows and take a look at him and like what we saw and went to talk to him. And he was told us, he goes, man, I just, he'd given his word to WCW. They had offered him a contract and he said, I'm, I'm going to WCW. We asked then that said, okay, how long is your contract? He told us it was a year. We said, when your contract's up, please give us a call. You know, we'll, we'll be waiting for you and would love to do business with you down the road. So this came up and at the time we, we didn't have anything for him and then we did and then we didn't. And he was actually ready to sign with WCW as legend goes, but then Eric didn't get him a contract and an opening came up on our end where it's like, Hey, this guy's available. And said, are you still, are you still looking to come? Because we've got an immediate spot where we can use you, uh, plug you into some live events and get you going, but you wouldn't start on TV for another few weeks if you'd be interested and timing's everything. So our timing was we had something for him there. WCW still hadn't gotten him a contract. And then when they did, it was just a little too, too little, too late. And he wanted the opportunity to come work for WWF and, and he had had his year in WCW and didn't feel like there was much left there for him. So the rest, as they say, is history. Who's, who's having that interaction? Does he hear the big pitch from Vince or does he hear it from you or Pat? I heard it from JJ. 
heard it from JJ and um, met with Vince and, and we, we all met with him and came up with the idea, you know, of, of an aristocrat from, we thought I came up with Greenwich cause I was asked, you know, where's like name a place where you instantly dislike the people. I said, Oh, that's Greenwich. Uh, <laughs> so this aristocrat from Greenwich, Connecticut and, uh, you know, it, it was a combination, but he, he originally, all that was done with JJ over the phone. And then he, and then he met with Vince and then we started rolling on vignettes and getting him in the mix. Let's keep it moving here. Meltzer would report that Max Payne's gimmick was dropped already. And his name was changed to man mountain rock doing the guitar gimmick. Uh, talk to me a little bit about man mountain rock. Well, his, his gimmick with WWF never was Max Payne. I mean, that may have been something he had done on the independence and WCW or something, but we brought him in. Uh, Daryl was a hell of an amateur wrestler in his day, big guy, good size, but his love was, you know, heavy metal rock. He wanted to be a rock and roll star. So in, in talking about this, Vince was like, do you play, do you do anything? And he said, yeah, I play guitar and. I like to sing. I like rock music. And um, here's this huge mountain of a man. Fuck, it writes itself. He became Man Mountain Rock. And he would come in and play the guitar. And I don't think that he had the singing chops. But it was a, it was a rock and roll gimmick with this big bastard. And then uh, looking for him to be able to deliver when the bell rings. And I think that he just was a little heavy when he came in and never really got into the shape that I think if he could have performed a la Bam Bam Bigelow, then I think that he might've been able to do something. What do you think? Uh, I mean, did you know at the time that he was going to go on to, to teach children to lip sync and create a really cool song for us? I mean, when did you know that this was going to be, you know, Matt Coon in the long run. <laughs> oh, I mean, no, he, saying, he you... wasn't, he wasn't paranoid and believed uh, stupid shit <laughs> and completely fucking clueless. No, he had a clue. Thanks for listening, Matt. We love and appreciate you. Not really. Yeah, not really. Uh, let's keep it going here. There's lots of other movers and shakers going on here. And this one, I can't wait to talk about Mike Halleck. He starts as the Minotaur and his name has now been changed to Mantar. Where did he, okay. Where does he get this shit that they started as he was never, he never started as a Minotaur. He was Mantar. And it's managed by Jim Cornette and what looks to be a rib on Cornette because this guy is awful winning with a splash where he doesn't even get off of his feet. However, he's supposed to be getting a push anyway. They've dropped the Buffalo head part of the gimmick and he's doing a face painted gimmick. <laughs> Jesus Christ. How much fucking weed were you on? when you thought of this shit, half man, half beast, Mantar. <clears throat> he had hooves, man. His fucking feet looked like hooves. They were huge. They were thick and looked like hooves. So goddamn. Half man, half beast, Mantar. A takeoff on a Minotaur. But 
fuck. God, mean made sense to me. Top ten worst ideas ever. Oh, he's up there. <laughs> I put him in top five. Jesus. Uh, you want to address the? It looks to be a rib on Cornet. I mean, when did you know this really sucked a dick? Right away. Here, okay, no, no. Actually, it got a giggle when we saw the head. All right, but the moment that you go, oh fuck, this is awful, is when he tried to get into the ring the first time. <laughs> You know, now we think about all that shit. You know, you, you you think about the presentation and every little thing. And at the time, you have a concept and you think about it and it sounds good in your head. And, you know, you get everybody there. You tell everybody what you think you want it to be. And then he goes to the ring and he can't get in the fucking ring because the head's goddamn tall. And if he bends over too far, the head's going to come off. And that's one where we sat there and just laughed our ass off going, what the fuck were we thinking? Um, <laughs> but he had hooves. Hooves. I'm telling you, hooves. My God. Huge fucking feet, like thick as shit. Did I mention he had hooves? Yes. No, okay. I, I, I don't know what to say. Uh, during this time, Bam Bam Bigelow and Diesel start doing Slim Jim commercials. How does this come to be? You know, for years, people said the uh, one of the big heat items with the company was when Randy left, he took the Slim Jim sponsorship. But, I mean, here it is. We've seen Ultimate Warrior do Slim Jim promos, and now Bam Bam and Diesel are doing them too. So it's obviously not the case that all of the business leaves. What do you remember about Bam Bam and Diesel snapping into it? Yeah, we tried to, to salvage that. And I think that they were, you know, first of all, they were in love with Warrior until he started spitting out the product after every take. And then they went to Randy and Randy, you know, was top notch and Randy lived the gimmick and wore their shit everywhere. So, but the deal was with WWF. And then when Randy tried to take it, they still had a deal with WWF and just to be able to try and find someone to, to fit that role for them. And I think there was a, the, the issue became, all right, man, you're, you're promoting on WCW with that guy and you're promoting on, on our show with this guy because they still wanted to buy time and they still wanted to be a part of the program, but they wanted to do it with Savage, who wasn't a part anymore. So it was a little kabuki-ish thing. Didn't last long. Let's keep it moving here. Uh, I want to talk about Lex Luger. Wade Keller would report, with Lex Luger's two-year contract with the WWF expiring this month, his promotional affiliation is not a foregone conclusion. Several indicators suggest the WWF may be resigned or willing to lose him, including the fact that Diesel has supplanted him as the top babyface. There have been unconfirmed reports that Luger has inquired about a meeting this week with WCW in Atlanta. If the WWF expects to lose Luger, that could explain Michael's rather harsh comments about Luger in recent weeks. 
saying things like he punches like a girl. Now, in fairness, Luger does have weak looking punches. It's not something you point out if there are long-term plans for him. Michaels also said that Luger would be helpless without a clothesline as an offensive weapon. And Luger reportedly was extremely upset with both of those comments. Luger is a longtime WCW wrestler before ever joining the WWF owns a gym in Atlanta with a top WCW talent and sting. And of course has family roots there now. After the WWF attempts to market him as the next Hulk Hogan, including an elaborate bus tour across the country failed. Luger has been relegated to the mid-level status in the company. If Luger re-signs with the WWF, they would probably feel safe in pushing him again, perhaps in main event matches against Brett or Diesel later this year. But if he doesn't stay, the WWF has buried Luger enough lately where it wouldn't even be perceived as a major blow. Because of his personal and business roots in WCW, that he would get a guaranteed deal with WCW well above his current WWF pay, a jump appears to be a distinct possibility. In WCW, that would set up another situation where Hogan down the line could team with Luger, turn on him and then feud with him. So lots of sort of fantasy booking here, but in the end, we know they get it right. Lex doesn't wind up leaving until September of 95. He shows up on the first episode of nitro. Were there concerns back here at the beginning of the year that, Hey, he might be out of here or did you guys already pretty much decided we don't really want to resign? No, Vince wanted to re-sign him. Vince Vince really wanted Lex to stay, and Vince had a soft spot for Lex and liked Lex. But the as I've said many times, my issue with Lex always was if you say you want to stay, then sign the contract. Then then show it. You know, it's there were there weren't any big guarantees at that time or anything like that. So that wasn't an issue. Um, if you want to stay, stay, show us. And he never would. So that just, it bred distrust, at least to me and, and to Pat, but Vince is, um, very big on taking guys at their word. And he wants to believe, you know, he, he wants to believe what they're saying is, is the gospel that they're going to be here and, and that we should do the same thing. And being the pessimist that I am at times, I just didn't believe it and I wanted to see it and we didn't see it. So, uh, I went about business being very careful in, in how we did things because you want to play with your players. If he's not going to be a player, then don't put him in the game. Let's talk about, uh, the actual Royal rumble here. Meltzer would write about the show and say, Ted, uh, Todd Pettengill, easy for me to say, did an excellent job on the pregame show and making it feel like a major event. Pettengill is really great in this role. And he is a hypester for the major shows role, but they've just got to keep him away from calling matches. The only negative was that the live crowd, while looking large enough on screen, came off so far less enthusiastic than Pettengill that he seemed like he was doing a sell job rather than coming off as natural. Todd Pettengill's a guy we haven't spent a ton of time talking about on the show. Recently, his uh, traditional radio career came to an end. He's doing his own thing, sort of taking control of his own career now, creating his own content. But he's sort of one of the unsung heroes of WWE for many, many years. 
I always thought that Todd Pettengill was one of the best sell salesmen that we ever had. He was such a natural. He was a great conversationalist, a great interview because he, he thought he thought like the fan. And yes, he he was great salesman, uh, sometimes over the top, but he was always entertaining and always came with ideas and was just so damn easy to work with. Um, you know, I'd, between Todd Pettengill and like Michael Cole, those guys came from a professional broadcasting, doing the news and, and doing radio and things like that. They just were naturals in, in their jobs and they kind of fell into it quicker than someone that hadn't done that before. And to me, Pettengill was, was excellent at what he did. Well, he's a salesperson and let's see if I can sell you some shit. If you like retro video games like Nintendo, super Nintendo or Sega Genesis wrestling from the late eighties or early nineties, then check out the dirty game room on YouTube the channel is run by Mark Allen, a dude in his mid thirties, whose main goal in life is creating entertaining videos that you can watch on your phone. While you take a shit, he works 60 hours a week at Chili's cooking. And obviously he hates every minute of that shit. The only thing that gets him through his shift is listening to 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff and something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard every single fucking day, hoping that one day Pritchard will finally reveal how big Batista's dick really is. He gets home, pounds beers and makes videos for us to watch. So we can escape reality for a few minutes. And I'll go back to a time when we were young, back when bills didn't matter back when we had no actual problems. The only thing upsetting at the time was that Sergeant slaughter had just beat warrior for the title at the 91 rumble. The channel has reviews and fun facts about not only video games, but also wrestling and TV and movies all from the same era movies like terminator two or Beetlejuice or Jurassic park or the crow or teenage mutant Ninja turtles. And TV shows like Airwolf and the Power Rangers. The Dirty Game Room also covers classic games like Contra, WrestleMania, No Mercy for the N64, Battletoads, Double Dragon, and a bunch of other shit. Click on the YouTube app on your phone and search The Dirty Game Room. Make sure you click the subscribe button, leave a comment on one of his videos, suggest future reviews, and he'll write back to you right away. The Dirty Game Room, all retro, all the time. Bruce, you're going to check this out the next time you take a shit. Already have. All right. You love it. It's a way to pass the time. And before you know it, you're done with your business and you've been entertained. You're ready to go on with your next piece of business. How does, since we're talking about all things Vince on this show, usually what's the phrase Vince uses when he has to take a shit? Does he think, say things like, uh, I have to go use the men's room. I have to go pinch a loaf. I've got to drop the Browns off at the Super Bowl. Got to drop the kids off at the pool. I got to go take a Bruce and wipe my Pritchard. What's he say usually? That he's going to do a Connie. <laughs> yeah, he refers to me as you. I got to go make a Connie. You know, that fat guy you do a podcast with. You know, you know the one with the beard or whatever. Yeah. 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 That one. Um, well, you know. Meltzer would be critical of what are we doing with our life? We're trying to make people laugh, entertain them, talk about <laughs> all those stories.
<laughs> Belson would say somebody needs to clue the celebrities they use in on the storyline of what's going to happen. Pam Anderson, who they hyped more than any of the wrestlers, both in selling the show and during the show visibly appeared to have no clue as to what was going on and nearly ruined the end of the show. She started laughing at Shawn Michaels doing his act. She was exa- exactly as bad as the centerfold girl at ringside during the flare sting 88 clash match, which aired on TB- TBS two nights earlier. In fact, they may as-, may as well have been the same person. Lawrence Taylor should have done anything but laugh during his angle with Bam Bam Bigelow. Critical. And this coming, and this coming from the genius who has who has actually put on so many shows and drawn so much money, and created so many angles and produced and directed so much talent during his time. He's an expert. Um, let, let me say this about that. Uh, Pam Anderson. First of all, if you follow the story all the way to WrestleMania, her reaction to Shawn Michaels, who was a heel motherfucker was exactly what it was supposed to be. So that it was a reluctant Pam Anderson throughout the promotion going to WrestleMania because it was kind of like, Oh fuck. I didn't want to be with Shawn Lawrence Taylor, who is sitting there and everybody was laughing at Bam Bam Bigelow for losing the match. That was the story, you fucking moron. And if you pay attention to story, not your 97-star matches in Yokohama, then you would understand that. Lawrence was being a part of the story. He was laughing at Bam Bam. And then being a professional, got up to say, hey, man, you know, good match. Hey, let's shake. To start the story. reacting to the it's just (laughs) the stupidity of the comments is is baffling to me I love when you get fired up no it's fucking baffling I I actually actually in my head said I'm not I'm not gonna go there this this week because of of just Yeah, up my ass sideways. It fucking irritates me so much. Well, you know, if you'd have got on this Jericho cruise this week, you could have been hanging out. No, with uh, yeah, no. Yeah, I'm sure he was hanging out. All right. What does that mean? I'm sure he was hanging out. Let's get back to the 95 Royal Rumble. Meltzer would say. Uh, their announcing was below par. Uh, Vince McMahon is usually very good, but seemed distracted at times during the show, even to the point of not knowing which member of well done was, which, and even trying to suddenly bring up history after more than a decade of erasing it. Jerry Lawler was too predictable with his comments about the same old tired gimmick. Bobby Heenan has been doing for years and still does of, uh, predictably changing predictions. So he's critical of the announcing. I got to tell you, when I watched this back, I didn't think they did a bad job. It was sort of par for course for them. Yeah, well, it was very entertaining. And, and you know, it, it's, <laughs> as I told you, I've been able to like watch the shows coming up. And I know we're doing shows now and I loop them in my office. So that <laughs> it's almost ingrained in my head. Um, but the announcing was good. 
It was fine. It was what it was. We should mention next week, buckle up. It's the radicals revisited. It's the show that essentially put us on the map way back in 2016. We're going to redo it, do a remix with the benefit of research. Back in the day, it was just a couple of guys sitting down, clicking record. Now we've actually got real formatting and forethought uh, and insight uh, that we could reference, you know, actual dates and specifics. So we'll do all of that next week. And then on February 7th, stay tuned for Sherry Martell. She is long overdue. Uh, let's talk about what Meltzer thought of this show though. And I think you'll be happy to hear. I felt this was an excellent show overall, particularly from a booking standpoint, given the obvious weaknesses in the company right now, when it comes to talent depth, it was remarked to me after the WWF right now has absolutely two superior former performers. It's Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart. They're pretty much everyone recognizes as real superstars that the company can build around razor Ramon diesel Lex Luger and Owen Hart are over to the degree of being secondary stars. And in the right scenario could work with the other two and have great matches that people still care about undertaker while having lost a tremendous amount of steam is still a gimmick that separates him from the pack. And one, two, three kid is also a unique performer. And Davy boy Smith has the name for Europe. The rest of the WWF comes off like a bunch of guys named Joe that nobody cares about, even though some of them are pushed very hard. Two guys named Joe are Jeff Jarrett, who epitomizes not being over no matter how hard they push him, and Bob Holly, who came out of this show as champions, named Joe, that renders these titles as worthless at the gate as all the secondary titles in WCW. So I think he's probably on the money about Sean and Brett and then the list of secondary stars and Undertaker and Davy Boy. What do you make of, of him? saying no matter what they do, Jeff Jarrett's never going to be over. You all know it's worthless. What's his opinion. Okay. What's your opinion? My opinion is, is that Jeff at the time character heel and was what it was, but you know, Bob Holly was somebody again, you it's like, Oh, this, this talent stale. So you, we want new, you bring in new, Oh, this news, no good. We want old. The, the tune never changes and it's oh, fucking hell. I am beginning to wonder about the quality of this show now, because I really liked it top to bottom. And now the fact that he says it was a good show. Now I'm second guessing it. I got you. Let's talk about your boy, my boy, your boy, Kane, Buck Quartermain. The fuck is that? <laughs> he's in the dark match here. He gets a win over the Brooklyn brawler. Uh, he's 52 years old. Now he was with the company in, uh, 1995, a little bit. And then he had some, uh, at this show, of course. And then I guess he worked for us. Yeah. I mean, you know, he had some like tryouts or whatever. He did some stuff with Dory Funk Jr. And that got him a couple of shots on like Jacked and Sunday Night Heat. He did. Uh, I thought that was the name you were making up. No, like a handicap match with Big Show. And uh, anyway, what's your favorite Buck Quartermain match? Yep, that one. Yeah. Anyway, he gets a win over the Brooklyn Brawler because goddamn, who didn't? Uh, I'm sure he's a very nice man. Oh, I'm sure Meltzer would say also too. I think you'll like this. 
even though the show was, in my opinion, from top to bottom, the best WWF pay-per-view show in years, the crowd reactions. It really, was definitely the best one so far this year. He really liked it. He said WrestleMania had two matches that were far better than anything here. Of course, he's talking about Razor and Sean and Brett and Owen. Uh, but he also says that this show only had one bad match. But he really thinks that the crowd reactions hurt the show. He says Jared in particular, and even Brett and Diesel for some of their match, they're doing very good work, and it just seems like the crowd didn't care. And those lives said the only sustained heat on the show was during the final few minutes of the tag title match. There's also some strange pops. A big pop for the entrances of Luger, Backlund, and Doink, but they all ended fairly quickly. And then Sean got a tremendous face reaction. You watch this back. You love the show. Did you notice that the fan reactions maybe weren't what they could have been? Yeah, but I think a lot of it had to do with with no music and just you didn't you didn't know who the hell it was until they were there. And Sean, as far as his reaction at the end, man, Sean was a babyface. Everything he did, it was he was so damn good that you know it was hard to boo him. So. Yeah, some of them were. I, I mean, you mentioned Backlund. Um, watching this show and seeing <laughs> just the reaction Bob got when he came out, I, I just was like, there you go. I mean, that that said it all because Bob was over and he got a reaction out of people and it was very entertaining. Yeah, it caught me off guard. I'll just be honest. I mean, I don't know what I expected. But when I, when I heard the reaction from him and it was so positive, I thought it was Clint from Hershey. I mean, I, I've never been a huge backline guy, but Clint from Hershey, it's one of his favorite wrestlers. Him and well, you know, about Backlund is from Glastonbury, Connecticut. That is just due east of Hershey, Pennsylvania, where it's the chocolate capital of the world. My favorite is the Reese's Pieces. I wish that they made them in different colors other than just orange and yellow. But, you know, that's where Bob Backlund's from, but he's my favorite wrestler. Let's keep it going. Let's talk about the opening match here. Jeff Jarrett is going to win the intercontinental title from razor Ramon in 18 minutes and six seconds, three and a quarter stars. Uh, what'd you think of this one? You know, it's an interesting deal where the first part of the match finishes when Ramon takes a bump over the top rope, starts selling the left knee on the outside, the roadie clips Ramon's knee. He's counted out. And then Jarrett says he didn't want to win by count out because he wants the title. So I guess they've been doing this on the house shows since like November. So they restart the match, keep it going. And, uh, eventually it goes Jarrett's way and they switch the title. What'd you think? I thought it was a damn good match. And I always, <laughs> like I always talk about, talk about raising. You always forget how big Scott Hall is and was massive he's a big damn man six seven i mean he's he's as tall or taller than hulk hogan yeah he and he just was so smooth and so good watching this match and this was something that we had done originally back with sean michaels and mr perfect when they had a little program where we would do these false finishes restart the match stop the match restart the match and and go on but we had never done it on pay-per-view and thought that these two guys could pull it off and be an entertaining story. 
So that was the thought process behind it. It was something that we had done with Sean and Perfect, and then it had been long enough that we did it with Razor and Jeff, and I thought it just added to the match. You, you think it's over, and you got more, and it was very entertaining. And I loved watching Brian Jane <laughs> just do the roadie gimmick. It was in its infancy, so it was, you know, the true – gist of the roadie gimmick with him getting down low and the idea he brings a microphone and he's always trying to stay off camera out of the out of the way like roadies do in a rock concert and it was entertaining to me brian james in a lot of ways stole stole a lot of scenes in this he really did you can see the charisma and it's it's no wonder that he went on to be a big star you know when given the opportunity was was that on Vince's radar? I feel like he he would get tickled with with a performer like this. Well, it, it, no, it wasn't until we started doing it, and then you would the little nuance things that Brian would do that you would chuckle at, and just say that's so fucking good. And he paid attention to the the little nuance details. It it began as hey, here's something for Brian James. And he'd been around, we'd had some tryout matches and it was Shawn Michaels idea. And Sean, you know, was, was doing the bit for us and go, he's a roadie and he gets down low and he's like, he brings Jeff, the microphone hands off to him and then gets out of the way and hangs out in the corner. And, and he, he's sneaky and he, he's trying to stay off camera and trying, trying to stay out of the way, but he's in the way all the time. And Brian just used that little in that, that description and made the most out of it and went on to bigger and better things. How critical do you think? You know what? And he was a good singer too. Now, not as good as me because what I do is I like to, um, spend my knees working hard on the go with the hands on the clock. Keep spinning too slow. I can't wait to be alone with my baby tonight. Well, that's that's cool. all you get tonight. Oh, good. I'm glad I was trying to cut you no, off. You're not, you know, my ah. baby's got me wrapped around her little finger and you know that I would walk through hell and back to be with her. Cause I can't wait to be alone with my baby tonight. Let's go to Lukenbach, Texas, Willie and Waylon and the boys. Okay. Do you get, do you get a Woodrow singing that song? Which one? Lukenbach, Texas or with my baby tonight? With my baby tonight. A little bit. Well, this episode is sponsored by blue chew guys. Remember the days when you were always ready to go? Well, now maybe you can work hard on the go. Uh, now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed. Listen up bluechew.com. That's blue, like the color blue and bluechew.com brings you the first chewable with the same FDA approved active ingredients as both Viagra and Cialis. So, you know, it works and you know, it's going to get your cock real, real hard. You can take them anytime day or night. You know, Bruce does even on a full stomach. And since they're chewable. They can work up to twice as fast as a pill. So you can be ready whenever an opportunity arises. And if you could benefit from more confidence where it counts, pal, bluechew.com is the fast and easy way to perform, to enhance your performance. Goddamn. Blue Chew is prescribed online by licensed physicians. 
So you don't have to go to the doctor's office or wait in line at the pharmacy and it ships right to your door in a discreet package. They're made right here in the USA. And since blue chew prepares and ships direct, they're cheaper than a pharmacy. And best of all, no more awkwardness. And right now we've got a special deal for our listeners. Just visit bluechew.com and get your first shipment for free. When you use our promo code wrestle, just pay $5 shipping and then we'll get your dick real, real hard for you. Again, that's B L U E C H E W.com. The promo code is wrestle and you can try it for free. That's right. We got free hard ons here on the show. Blue chew is the better, cheaper, faster choice. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. Bruce, have you, have you snuck anybody in the office, any blue chew yet? Easy now, tiger. Just in my head, I, the old genetic jackhammer, he could appreciate a little blue chew here and there. I'll tell you everybody, whenever it comes up, they know, they know the address blue com, and, uh, always let them know, Hey, I can get your first order for free. Use our promo code wrestle. Going to get that cock meat super hard for you. Next up, we've got the undertaker working with IRS. Yeah, that's a real thing. There's going to be druids involved here. They're going to shake the ropes when undertaker's going for a rope walk. He's going to fall in and immediately sit up. Uh, this is interesting. I suppose eventually IRS steals the urn from Paul bear King uh, Kong Bundy comes out. Does a lame run in with an elbow drop, a knee drop, and a splash on Undertaker. Bundy leaves him laying. And without the magic urn, Undertaker selling the beating, and uh, he's shaking up badly. So, star in a quarter, but Undertaker gets the win in 12 minutes, 21 seconds. Why are these two put together? Feels sort of out of left field. Well, there's only two things you can count on in this world that's death and taxes. So, oh, it was a- fuck. What? Just we, we made that correlation a long time ago that if they were a tag team, that's what it would be called. But I can't believe you just decided to dust that off today. That's because that's what it was. That was two things you can count on. And so obviously they were at odds. And uh, I don't think Undertaker has forgiven me to this day to um, go to the Bundy story at WrestleMania. It yeah, does, it does feel like you guys made him draw the short straw many years in a row. Uh, because he could handle it. Yeah, you know what? That's the confidence the, in him. That's the shitty deal, you know, with like, uh, you know, being, I don't know, we'll talk about it another time. Uh, as we know, 20 years later, Undertaker would defeat IRS's son, Bray Wyatt, at WrestleMania. Tells you how long this dude's been around carrying the heavy water for generations. Uh, next up, man, one of the better matches of Bret Hart and certainly diesel's career four and a quarter stars. This is their second pay-per-view match. King of the ring 94. They also wrestle for the world title with diesel winning by DQ and Jim Neidhart, who is in Brett's corner would interfere and hit diesel. Brett would end up defeating diesel for that title later in the year survivor series. I think that's probably the best of the three, but this is a really good one. And they give them plenty of time, 27 minutes and 19 seconds. Hart's going to come out playing a, uh, an aggressive, subtle heel wrapping diesel's leg around the ring post and using a figure four, uh, at the start of this thing, Shawn Michaels is going to be involved. 
Either way, Diesel retains, goes to a no decision. I like the storytelling. They got plenty of time. At the end, we get to showcase a lot of other talents. Shawn Michaels, Owen Hart, Bob Backlund, Jeff Jarrett, the roadie. Everybody's doing a run in. It's chaos. I wish we had a clean finish on the pay-per-view, but the match on the way there, pretty good stuff. Yeah, you didn't need a finish on this, and it was so damn good, including the promos backstage leading up to it from earlier in the day with Pettengill trying to get a word from Diesel, who was nonchalant earlier in the day and laughing and joking, and now he was all into the match and and didn't feel like talking to Todd. Then you go to Brett, who was just Brett, and it was sold the match. He's like, hey, you know what? I mean, I like Diesel. He's an all right guy, but I'm going to beat him. I'm going to beat him. I mean, I I don't care one way or another. I'm going to beat him for the championship because that's what it's all about. It made this match important and it made it real and you felt both sides of it. And Brett didn't, you know, Brett didn't go full on heel. Brett went in there as kind of the underdog to the giant diesel. They told a tremendous story and we told a lot of stories around it based on where we wanted to go at WrestleMania with Sean and diesel. Um, I just enjoy, I sat there and, Watched it twice. <laughs> I mean, in its entirety, both times. And when it came on, thinking, holy shit, I think that the matches, Brett brought out the best in Diesel. And all their matches, this one in particular, were some of the best shit that Diesel ever did, in my opinion. I don't know how you can argue that. Really, really great performance by Brett. Uh, he gives uh, Diesel one of the best matches he ever had. Uh, next up, we've got a three and three quarter match. It's a uh, tag team tournament finale. Crowned some new champions. In round one, as a recap, we saw Bigelow and Tataka beat Men on a Mission. The Head Shrinkers would get a win over Owen and Neidhart. The Heavenly Bodies would beat the Bushwhackers. Uh, one, two, three kid and Bob Holly would beat Well Done. And the semifinals is Bigelow and Tataka over the Head Shrinkers and Bob Holly and one, two, three kid over the Heavenly Bodies. Now here we are. It's the finale. It's one, two, three kid and Bob Holly winning the tag titles over Bam Bam and Tataka. They get plenty of time, 15 minutes and 32 seconds. They're really pushing just based on size alone that the one, two, three kid and Bob Holly are the underdogs and they've done it so hard on commentary that Meltzer would say they effectively leave little doubt that they're going to be anything other than the winners. And the announcers are selling the idea that Bigelow is going to be laughed at by everyone because he was pinned by the one, two, three kid and Bigelow was running around ringside and Lawrence Taylor is laughing at him. And then Bigelow gave Taylor a great shove and this builds their WrestleMania confrontation three and three quarter stars. What'd you think of the match? And what'd you think of the decision to uh, put the straps on the one, two, three kid and Bob Holly? They're going to lose them the very next night on a live raw to the smoking guns. So is this simply done as a way to establish Bigelow and Lawrence Taylor? Exactly. The, the whole match, everything about it was to get to bam, bam and LT the going back and watching this match. God, I, I marveled at 
just the agility and athleticism of Bam Bam Bigelow. You forget he was a big bastard and he could move like a lightweight, um, sold everything. It was just a, a really, really good match. Maybe a little bit too long. Yeah, it could have, could have gone a few minutes shorter, but it was a means to an end. And at the end, the stuff with LT I thought was played to perfection, especially on LT's part, laughing at, at Bigelow and then being being real, like, hey man, come on, you know, we're professionals and put her here, dude. I'm just I'm just fucking with you. I appreciate your shit. And the shove. Uh Bam Bam shoved the living shit out of him and he went through Dino and everybody in the in all the way back to the third row. Um it was great shit. I mean, and, and LT, especially in that market, you know, we're in Hartford and where are we? Yeah, we're in Hartford. No, we weren't. We're in fucking Tampa. Why am I thinking we're in Hartford for, well, for the pay-per-view? For WrestleMania. We're in Tampa. Yeah. But LT had just retired and, and he was still a big name in football and everybody knew who the fuck LT was. And it was going to be a big deal in that New York market when we replayed that everywhere. But, um. We had gotten down. We stayed at Saddlebrook in the Tampa area. And I remember that was so that we could be close to LT. We could spend some time with him because all LT wanted to do, he didn't give a shit how many hours he had to work out. He didn't give a shit what what you wanted him to do. He just wanted to be able to play 18 holes of golf every day. So we got him to Saddlebrook. We stayed at the resort, and he got his 18 holes of golf in, and then he was happy, and he would do whatever you wanted him to do. Just had to get that golf in first. How did you guys choose Bigelow for his opponent? Somebody that was big and impressive that you could put in the press and be able to hold his own with the New York press and a formidable opponent, someone that would look big and nasty, look the part, that you feel in a fight with LT would probably kick LT's ass. LT had a reputation for being a badass, and so did Bigelow. Um, it was he looked apart, a, a different a different look with the bald head and the flames and everything. So the New York media is going to eat that shit up, and it just it worked. And also felt that Bam Bam was a good enough worker that he could carry LT to a good match. And those guys, again, I, I think of the the talent and the outsiders that have come into our world and been able to adapt. LT was one that um, first time you see somebody in a ring, if they're comfortable, and LT rolled into the ring and laid on the mat and, and got up and just kind of played. And it was like, holy shit, he's home. He, fe- he felt at home in the ring the very first time he ever got in. And that's when you know, okay, he's going to be okay. How does, uh, how does the deal come together? Who contacts who? We contacted them. We had some, some connections at the time. Uh, actually Lisa Wolf, who had worked with the NFL and we used those connections, reached out to LT and it was, it was all timing and it was looking for something because Hartford was so close to New York that you wanted to make it a local event in a lot of respects and have him at home where we knew he would be cheered and you get the press. 
God, man, we did the the workout in Times Square, literally set a ring up in Times Square and shut down Times Square at noon you know, in the middle of the day and had a public workout with LT and, and drew an unbelievable crowd. Those kind of stunts that because LT was local, lived there, um, again, all he wanted to do was play golf. Man, get me my 18 holes and I'll do whatever you want. Get me on a get me on a course I can't get on, which he could get on any course he wanted. But uh, he was happy to to do whatever you needed him to do. And we started out this promotion uh, having him for X amount of dates, like a, a few dates. It was you had this, you had Tampa, you had. Um, a press conference, and then a few more dates leading up to WrestleMania. And as we got into this, after Tampa, it was like, shit. He loved it so much. We fell in love with him. It was like, hey, man, you're all in. You're with us for the next three months. And he was like, cool. Want to play golf? Who all helped train and wrestle? Uh, that That was Bam Bam and Pat. And by and the they, time, by the time we see him here at Royal Rumble, had he already started training or was that after this? I think I don't, I don't remember. I think he had been in the ring before this, but not a lot. You know, the majority of it came on the way in, in the window from rumble to, to mania, but he was there a lot. I mean, he, he showed up and worked his ass off. Was anybody else considered besides Bam Bam? Or I mean, it was once you guys came to that, obviously that's the one you went with, but do you remember anybody else even being kicked around? It, it's, it's weird to sort of fantasy book that one. Cause I can't imagine it with anybody else. Yeah. You know, we talked about teaming him with diesel and, and that kind of a scenario, but Lawrence Taylor was such a natural athlete and he was such a big star in that market that there was confidence on Bam Bam's part. There was confidence on our part that Bam Bam could carry him to a match. So once, once we all had that confidence, it it was the intrigue of seeing what LT could do in a ring by himself. Let's get going here on the Royal rumble. Number one, Sean Michael. Of course, he's going to, uh, win this one. He's going to last longer than anybody. And he's going to have the most eliminations eight here. Uh, the British bulldog is out next and, uh, he's going to be there at the very end too. So he's going to last almost as long as Shawn Michaels, just one second less. Of course, next up, we've got Eli blue, uh, who we've talked about a little bit under different names. You remember the Harris brothers and then Duke, the dumpster Drose. Haven't spent a lot of time talking about him. He comes in at number four. What do you remember about old Duke? Nice guy. And that was about it. Uh, you know, oh, Mike Drosy was, uh, probably too nice for this business. And he was the kind of guy that would, would believe everything anybody would tell him. And it just, he, he, super nice guy, but it just, I don't think he was meant for the business. 
I think he's uh, in Tennessee these days. Let's keep it moving. Let's talk about next up another guy we don't talk about a lot. Number five, Jimmy Del Rey, and this is uh, well, he had an interesting, an interesting run in the company to say the least. We lost him, gosh, six or seven years ago. I think he uh, suffered a heart attack while he was driving, and unfortunately passed away. But he had an interesting end to his run here with the company. I think a lot of fans remember him as, as being a, a big part of Smoky Mountain Wrestling. But he was involved with the World Wrestling Federation as well. What do you remember? Uh, yeah, he was one half of the Heavenly Bodies with Tom. And he was Jimmy Backlund. He, he had worked in Florida. But I, you know, I didn't know much about him before he came in. He was kind of one of those unknown guys that got into a spot and had a, you know, his 15 minutes of fame, but, you know, not a lot after he left and was just kind of one of those journeymen that came through and had a little bit of a run and moved on. If you haven't, you need to go out of your way to see, uh, Kevin Nash tell the story of Jimmy Del Rey's final incident with the company. Do you remember hearing about that? the quote unquote helter skelter where allegedly he, uh, laid with the lady who may or may not have been on her period. And may oh not- God, I don't need to hear that <laughs> shit. Man, what the fuck? I think he, uh, allegedly he put some housey on. Oh God. No, 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 no. <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, coming up next, we've got who we know as the barbarian, but you guys have decided to call him something different here at number six. Why are you changing the barbarian's name? By the way, it's his real first name, but why? He was Sione. <laughs> I know. I really don't know. I, I, yeah, I heard that. I'm like, what? What? Yeah. Fucking barb. I, I dumbfounded for an answer there. Next up, Dr. Tom Pritchard, who we know is almost universally loved. Uh, number eight, Doink the Clown. Number seven, uh, we've thought about this for a long Quang. time. Quang. I think it's Quang. No, it's not Quang. You're going well, Quang. He's in Alabama, call him Quang. Well, I mean, some people call him TNT. I know him as Savio Vega. He's in at number nine. Then Rick Martell, which seems like uh, from another era. Then Owen Hart in a number 11 at number 12, Timothy. Well, I don't know when we're going to talk about him again. We lost him. Gosh, just a couple of years ago, went away way too early, passing away at the very young age of 55. We knew him as Rex King. We knew him as Timothy. Well, he's part of well done. My goodness. What do you remember about this? Oh boy, Rex was up there on the paranoid meter. Um, I think that if he would have gotten out of his own way, that he, I don't know, he did all right. It just was, there's there's some guys that, that are meant to fill out the card, and Rex was one of those guys who was meant to fill out the card. It, it wasn't a lot of personality there, or not a special look or anything else, but he could definitely go when the bell rang. Man, it's weird to talk about this, but you look through these old cards like this and you see so many guys who've passed away and they're no longer with us. It makes me think of life insurance. 
And you might look good and feel good and think you're doing everything right for your health today. But if you're not planning of the what ifs of tomorrow, it's time you do. The problem is historically and rather ironically, the health conscious have overpaid and subsidized those who are less health conscious. And that's not just a conspiracy. It's just how life insurance works until now. Introducing health IQ. You see health IQ uses both science and data to secure lower rates for people like you on their life insurance. If you're a runner or a cyclist, maybe you're into CrossFit or some other type of athlete, maybe you're a vegan or vegetarian. If you're putting in the hard work, you deserve to be rewarded for that hard work with more affordable life insurance and health IQ can save you up to 41% because physically active people have significantly lower risk for heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. And by the way, health IQ, not just a lead generator. They take the customer through the entire process of applying and the policy is underwritten by one of our top insurance partners, but the savings, well, that is exclusive to health IQ. You won't find them anywhere else and you must qualify to get a special rate. See, if you qualify, go to healthiq.com forward slash wrestle and take the proprietary health IQ quiz, depending upon your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premium compared to other providers. Again, that's healthiq.com slash wrestle to let them know we sent you and start the process with the health IQ quiz. Again, there's no commitment and you'll learn even more about potential opportunities to be rewarded for your commitment to living healthy. One last time that's healthiq.com slash wrestle. Next up at number 13, we've got bushwhacker Luke. He's only going to be in here 12 seconds. He's in and out. Uh, I guess it's worth mentioning. Owen Hart was out in three seconds. Uh, Timothy. Well, he's out in 23 seconds. Uh, Bushwhacker Luke. He's out in 12 seconds. And then Jacob blue. He's out in 17 seconds at number 14. King Kong Bundy comes in at number 15. Mo is in at number 16. What's your favorite Mo match? I definitely say this one. Yeah. I did a great job. Yeah, I could he could have done a little less time, but yeah, three seconds is what he did here. Yeah, number seventeen, it's uh, Mabel. Number eighteen, Bushwhacker Butch. Number nineteen, it's Lex Luger. Number twenty, your favorite and mine, Mantar. Mm-hmm. You believe he he going- had hooves? I just want to remind everybody that Mantar right now as we speak is just two years younger than Chris Jericho. Yeah. He was a youngster. I'm just saying hell of an amateur too. Mantar could be your, your champion real soon. 21 Aldo Montoya, 22 and giant of a man, Henry O'Godwin 23, another giant of a man, Billy Gunn. 24 Bart Gunn. 25 Bob Backlund to a big pop 26 Stephen Dunn 27 Dick Murdoch. What in the world? I can't believe Dick Murdoch was in this. Of course we know Dick would only live another 18 months or so. He passed away in June of 96, but I don't remember him ever being here. And here he was. How does this come to be? Well, the entrance for the Royal Rumble that went out uh, worldwide and Dick got his entry fee in early to be a participant in the Royal Rumble. 
So he uh, was one of the lucky ones that, that made it through the application process. And threw a fucking drop kick in the match. Serious business. Who pushed for Murdoch to be in? We all, you know, we would always look for that outside guy, you know, one or two that you're like, what the fuck? And Dick was our, what the fuck this year? I think that Nick had called or somebody had had a conversation with him at some point and <laughs> going, what about Dick Murdoch? Great. See if he's available. It is like crazy to think that he was involved in this. Like, and one of the last ones. In yeah. The ring. Yeah. I mean, you would think it would have been somewhere else, but it wasn't. It's just, I don't know. Interesting to me. And hey, the, the year hey, before, he and Butch Reed were over in Florida. No argument for me. The year before, you guys did something similar when you had Tenru and the great Kabuki in there. Which, Kabuki. Which really He's stood just an Aaron boy, Kabuki. But you got, uh, the next year you've got like squat teamer number one and squat teamer number two, of course the headhunters just, and then Dory Funk was in that one. And yeah, you guys were doing some weird stuff during the rumbles back here. 28 Adam bomb, 29 Fatu, who we know is going to go on to be Rikishi and uh, number 30 crush. So we got both Brian Clark and Brian Adams here. You know, not the most star studded affair, but they did a good job with it. Of course, the, uh, the finish comes down to an interesting moment here. Um, we've got crush sort of pressing Shawn Michaels over his head, sort of Ric Flair sting style, but he does a couple of reps with him, but Sean lands in the ring. And then Davy boy clotheslines crush over the top. Michaels is putting on a show, taking some bumps for Davy boy. Eventually Davy boy clotheslines Sean Michaels over. And it looks like he's eliminated, but Sean's holding on to the top rope with one hand, the middle rope with the other, only one to one foot touches the floor. They've got the camera set up perfectly on either side and two referees notice and indicate that only one foot has hit the floor. Eventually bulldog thinks he's won the thing. They cue his music. His music starts playing. He goes to the middle rope camera side to celebrate. We've got a tight shot on him. And then out of nowhere, Sean hits him with the old ax handle in the back. Davy boy tumbles out. Then the bell rings and the referees are trying to raise Sean's hand and let everybody know that the winner because only one foot touched is Shawn Michaels. And they're careful on the original showing to not air a clean shot of Shawn landing in case it wasn't perfect, but he did it perfectly. Only had one foot there, three and a half stars. What'd you think of the match? What'd you think of the finish? Uh, actually, you know, I'd been reading on Twitter and a lot of the tweets and it, and it felt like people thought this was like the worst rumble match ever. I thought it was damn good. It told a great story of Sean and Davy boy all the way through. We integrated the stories with Brett and Owen and Backlund and all that other shit within the match. And 
all the way through, you have the consistent story of is Shawn Michaels going to last till the end? Is Davy Boy Smith going to last to the end? And the first two guys that start the damn thing ended the damn thing. And it was just masterfully done, in, in my opinion. And, and yes, I'm, I'm prejudiced. Put it together with Patrick's. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely prejudiced. And I have a little bit of pride of authorship there. But it was just done to perfection. And, and Sean, it was Sean's idea for the one foot. Uh, he was like, hey, both feet have to have to hit. What happens if only one, one hits? And we'll both have to hit. And he had this crazy idea. Man, if you touch, we're fucked. And we figured out how to shoot it and, and make sure that we weren't going to get caught live. But he, you know, he was like, I ain't going to touch. Trust me. I'm going to come close, but I ain't going to touch. And he never did. And the... Just that story. Davy Davy thought he won, man. It's all the celebration and, and that fucker's still hanging on. And ugh, shit. It just felt really good. And going back all these years later and, and watching it, knowing very few people knew. You know, we even started Bulldog's music when Bulldog, you know, went over and the referee, the one referee inside, you know, raised Bulldog's hand. We hit his music like it was a mistake. And, oh, my God, Bulldog won. Everybody thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, the referee's outside. Only once touched. Um, great story. It was a great story. Very well done. Uh, we should mention Shawn Michaels had been out of action uh, for a little while leading up to this rumble because he had two pins put in his hand. And this rumble match marks his return to TV. Uh, but he was working some house shows here and there on the way here. This is the second year in a row with a creative finish for the rumble. You may remember in 94, it looked like, uh, Lex Luger and Brett touched at the same time. And that's why we got the interesting set of matches at WrestleMania that we did. And the previous year, was there any concern that with, after doing that finish in 94, that maybe we were going back to the well too soon here, or did this feel different enough that everybody was satisfied? I thought it was completely different. Yeah, because you, uh, you we, we did the double finish and we had to have the match with Brett and Luger. And, and here it was just, he wasn't eliminated. And, and it was, it has been something that we've been able to use and utilize for, for years since and different creative ways to tell that same story and each year. And it's a challenge to make it different. With this win, Shawn Michaels becomes the first man in Royal Rumble history to win the match coming in at the number one position. As we said, he had eight eliminations in the match, which at the time ties Hulk Hogan from 89 with the most eliminations in one match. Also with the win, as we know, Shawn is going to lock up a world title shot at WrestleMania 11, which would wind up being with his former friend slash bodyguard diesel. So after the ring, uh, is cleared and Shawn is the winner. He, uh, brings in Pam Anderson with him who's sitting ringside and, uh, starts doing his little dance and she acts like she'd rather be anywhere, but there, as we've talked about, it's very clear here that Sean's one of the top performers in the company. Was anybody, was anything else even considered or, or did you know at this point, 
he's getting the world title shot at 11. I mean, you knew what your quote unquote main event was with Lawrence Taylor and Bam Bam Bigelow, but that's the attraction. Was it a no brainer that he's getting the title shot? Yeah, we, we had planned it for a while. It was the split up of, of Sean and diesel and you know, now Sean's making his play for the championship and that was always the plan getting there. In hindsight, does it feel like when you watch this back and the pay-per-view starts instead of the, cause these, this show could not start any differently than the one we reviewed last week with 1990, where Vince is doing a voiceover and putting over 30 different talents and really stressing that it's every man for himself. And we don't see that here. Instead, we see all the guys lined up to jack off to Pamela Anderson's limousine arriving. In hindsight, did that take away? It doesn't feel like it ages the right way. Like we're not, there's not enough focus on what we're here to talk about. It's all on this at the time, larger than life, pop culture celebrity. Well, and she was probably the most recognizable celebrity in the world at that time. So you might as well utilize that while you have it. And that was the idea behind it. So I think we told the story all the way through the meaning of the Royal rumble and winning it, getting that title opportunity and, you know, Pam being a part of that, knowing that we had Pam again for WrestleMania, um, her going away and marrying Tommy Lee and coming back a different person was a whole nother story. (laughs) But at the time, it was pretty cool to have Pam Anderson and, and know that we had her later on for WrestleMania because she was so she was just so great to work with throughout the entire promotion. Did you ever have to uh, do any shoots with her? Were you producing any vignettes or skits or anything? I did. I had uh, I shot all the stuff out in Malibu with with Pam and Diesel and Lex and Randy and everybody and easy, wonderful young lady to work with. Anything interesting or notable happened on those vignettes? She was great to work with. <laughs> uh, she's, you said a minute ago that, uh, she was the most recognizable celebrity in the world. Who was the second most recognizable celebrity? In the I was, world? I was the second most recognizable athlete. When you go into the celebrity world, I might've been like number three or four, but I was definitely number two. Interesting fact about this rumble match. Seven guys last 25 seconds or less. Timothy Well, 25 seconds. Bushwhacker Butch, 19 seconds. Jacob Blue, 17 seconds. Bob Backlund, 16 seconds. Bushwhacker Luke, 12 seconds. Uh, Owen Hart and Moe, three seconds each. And uh, another interesting fact, I guess, 60% of the entrants in this rumble, they're gone by the end of the year. Uh, Pretty remarkable. Uh, where do you rank Royal Rumble 1995 out of all the Rumbles you've been a part of? Don't say top five because we'll know you're lying. No, but you know what? I mean, it ranks up there. I, I don't know as far as a number, but I thought it was a pretty damn good Rumble that held up from start to finish on the matches in the story of the whole night. You got the Diesel Brett shit and then the Rumble itself, which were the two big stories. And you got to start a celebrity deal with. Lawrence Taylor and Bam Bam Bigelow. So all these years later watching it, I thought it still worked and still all those stories held up. Well, what else held up is you guys asking questions for us, uh, here on Twitter. We took to Twitter and said, if you had a question for this one, fire it away. Let's do some rapid fire, Bruce. Are you ready? 
I guess so. I want to mention on our way here, the cheapest and easiest way to support us here on the show uh, is to go to youtube.com forward slash something to wrestle. Now, please go there, hit the subscribe button, click the notifications bell. You'll get notified anytime we upload some new clips and it is the easiest and best way to introduce the show to the friends in your life who maybe uh, are wrestling fans or used to be, uh, cause there's some small bite size episodes in there, uh, where it's just a clip, you know, three minutes, 10 minutes and not the, you know, two or three hour commitment that sometimes these shows are, uh, let's get to Twitter here. Uh, you can participate and ask a question next week at Pritchard show. Just look for the post asking for questions and coming your way. Mayhem writes. Is it true? Dick Murdoch was going to be offered a part-time contract on the roster to have more dates. What was his perceived health at this event? As far as I know, Dick's health was fine. And Dick, I think was looking to be able to do something, whether it was working with young talent, help some young talent, but this was nothing more than a cameo and bring Dick in and have some fun, (laughs) bring Dick in and have some fun. Yeah, we're not doing blue chew here. Charlie thrower wants to know, I don't think it's been discussed on the show, but what's going on with the talent backstage during the rumble match while they wait for their spot. Are they all lined up in a single file line? Do they huddle around gorilla? Are they hanging out in the locker room, et cetera? I got to tell you, it fucking tickles me to no end that they're all just standing there single file. Like it's a goddamn fire drill. Uh, tell everybody where they are during the match. In a single file line uh, down the hallway. <laughs> that fucking tickles me. With strict instructions, no fighting. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, Bacabella writes We know that 95 was a transition year for the company and houses were down. With all the trends in place from previous years and no official developmental system in place just yet, it begs the question. How big's Batista's dick? Still thinking about it? Charlie Thrower writes in in storyline, it was said that Bart Gunn was injured in a rodeo accident. I gotta tell you, watching it back, that really cracked me up. How did Gunn injure himself? In a rodeo accident. Be specific. Dude. He loved rodeo. Bull riding. Threw him off. You know. Uh, lots of questions about Titan time. Did you guys ever run the clock exactly on the nose? Was there? Did Vince ever care? Was it on anyone's radar, or was it just sort of whatever? Does anybody really care? Yeah. I mean, we get a lot of questions about it. Yes. We were on the clock. It's on the screen. Sure. David Lane wants to know was, was Pam Anderson ever in any serious discussion about being signed to be a more permanent part of the WWE? (laughs) No, she was not. Uh, Dave writes in, you've often said that Kevin Nash worked best when he was working with smaller, more technical opponents. Who do you think gave Kevin his best matches? Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart. And, and the reason is, is because I think Shawn was, uh, 
very giving to Kevin and Sean always was out there to, you know, fly and, and do whatever he could to, to make the best match. And I think that because Sean and diesel were friends, I think Sean sometimes gave a little too much. Um, but I think that Brett had the best matches and got the most out of diesel. Uh, Omar writes, we've only ever had one 40 man Royal rumble. You think with the ever expanding roster inclusion of NXT as a brand themselves that would have become the norm. Why do you think it's always remained 30? 30 is a good number. And, and an hour is, is the time, man. I, I just think it gets God 40 would be a nightmare. I think. James Kirby wants to know why did diesel never get a clean win over Brett? He did. Diesel beat Brett. Not here, but he did. I don't know where. Don't ask me the date. Oh, well, the date was. I'm sure Clint from Hershey can be able to tell us, but no, I'm sure he did. Uh, Michael Myers. Hey, tweets to add Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. No, don't do that. Um, Cardboard Icons writes, no questions, just a comment. Pam Anderson in that white outfit. Thank you, Vince. Signed, 15-year-old me. Uh, Michael Myers wants to know, was there any talent or staff that was overly fixated with Pam Anderson? You know, people are always fascinated by the, the celebrity encounters. Anything stand out about this visit with Pam Anderson? No, God, Pam was through the Royal Rumble promotion. Um, Pam was fabulous. She was engaged. She was you know, just, just there for everything. And she took direction. She, she was just fun to work with. And then, you know, she changed a little bit, uh, with Tommy. I think, you know, she was in La La Land a little bit for WrestleMania, but up until this point, and I enjoyed working with her, her agent manager and, they were just, they were good to work with. Sometimes you get celebrities don't want to do anything and want, you know, this kind of dressing room with this kind of bubbly and all this other bullshit. And she wasn't like that at all. She was down to earth. You know, she watched the matches. She was friendly to everybody. She wasn't, you know, stuck up sitting in her dressing room, not talking to anybody. She took pictures with everyone and, and was, just a, a real pro through and through. I can't believe this is real, but we discovered this several weeks ago or months ago at this point, but Daniel writes in, I don't know that I've ever asked it specifically. Why was Scott Hall never in a Royal rumble match? It does seem really weird, but everybody was in one except him. God, I have no idea. Never. I need you to just pretend that he had a rational fear of clocks or drawing numbers. <laughs> Gotta come up with some bullshit that we just pass along here. Let me let me examine that and I'll answer that next week. Man, I uh I'm looking forward to next week because we're talking about the radicals. If you're out of the loop on this, man, go back and revisit our show in the archives. It's an emotional roller coaster. You hear Bruce go through you know, all of the emotions, man, he's happy, he's sad, he's mad, he's everything in between. And, uh, 
it's going to be an emotional show next week. I'm looking forward to it. Hope you are too. hit the subscribe button. Leave us a five-star review. If you think we've earned it uh, and don't forget to support our sponsors. Uh, the easiest way to support us is to go to uh, youtube.com forward slash something to wrestle. Hit that subscribe button. If you haven't already, and be sure to click the notification bell. The rumor and innuendo is, uh, we're going to be trying to grow that YouTube channel this year. Love to have you check out some shirts over at brucepritchard.com. Of course, we can save you some money at savewithconrad.com. Even show you how to skip a couple of house payments. If you'd like to advertise on our show, go to advertisewithconrad.com, which will be live by the time you hear this. And uh, speaking of advertising, we need to thank our title sponsor effectively today. And that's Steven Singer, specifically, I hate stevensinger.com. It's a no brainer this Valentine's day. If you're looking for the perfect gift, something that will last forever, something unique, something special. How about a real long stem American beauty rose that has been deeply dipped in 24 karat gold. It's going to come with a personalized love note from you all in a really cool box. And it's shipped for free starting at just $59. You can't beat this. Don't overthink it. Don't get it wrong. This looks like it's $590, but in fact, it's just 59 bucks. What are you waiting for? Go see how cool this is for yourself. It's not a gimmick. It's a great deal. It's I hate That's I hate until next week. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. It's time to have lunch. Don't they? SL Pancho I'm looking forward to you stopping there. I'm, I'm over it. No, I'm not. I miss Shaka Khan. Yeah, she's old. So are you. I'm not. R2. I'm not. R2. Old enough to have lunch with Pashavia. Who booked that shit? I just did. You're booking a lot of shit these days. You know. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.